Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Dallas Mavericks podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. And I am Brian Damaris, former director of basketball development for the Mavs. And as always, with me, the golden-throated one, the voice, the TV voice, excuse me, of the Mavs, Mark Followell. Hello, Brian. Let me wish you, on behalf of uh, all of our listeners as well, a belated happy birthday. Your birthday was yesterday, on Tuesday. Thank you. I spent it in quarantine, uh, (laughs) drinking brown drink by myself and watching Netflix. So that's the way I think us April babies are going to have to do it. Yeah, let's hope that your uh, birthday that you celebrate in 2021, which is a big number. Yes. It's a nice round number. We yes. hope, let's hope it's that one one's a lot better. Yeah. It's one of the, there aren't a lot of milestones past 21, really. Yeah. So this is kind of the big one. My uh, big one is next year as well. And so, uh, you know, obviously we have a lot bigger things to worry about, but I know that, uh, well, I, I'll save it. It ties into a question that comes in our mailbag later okay. about sports and doing something to celebrate that birthday sporting related. So we'll, well, we'll get to that. Speaking of uh, sports and reminiscing, we all... We all got a little Jones fix when uh, the last dance came out Sunday night, the first two hours, which I think uh, we were all anticipating. And uh, I think you even had a tweet that it was a glorious two hours. It was a glorious two hours. It was fantastic. Uh, it was it was great to watch it. Uh, clearly, we're all very, very much starved for sports right now. And to see things about Jordan dating all the way back to like little scene collegiate footage talking about his recruiting process, uh, you know, what it was like for him as a rookie, um, you know, that highlights of the third game, you know, when Rod Thorne was talking about them beating Milwaukee and everybody realizing two weeks in that he was the best player on the team. To hear, you know, look, we all have memories and recollections of the title seasons, but uh, the beginning, the very beginning, you know, that's, that's something that's really faded from memory. To see that stuff to me was just, just absolutely outstanding. And I, I think a lot of people maybe that, that are younger don't remember he went third. Yeah. You know, it was it was Olajuwon who was a consensus going to be number one and also had a great career, won two titles with the Rockets. Even Rod Thorne, the Bulls general manager at the time yes. who made the pick of Jordan said, had I had the number one pick, I would have drafted Akeem Olajuwon. And, and then, of course, the and as was mentioned, you know, there was such a skewing to being a big man. Yep. You know, you heard Mark Eaton and some other people saying, you know, he's yep. great, but he's not seven feet tall. Yeah, Walt Frazier said that. There yeah. was a soundbite from him on there as well. Uh, so Sam Bowie was picked second. And of course, you know, never really had much of a, of a career uh, in Portland, kind of felt they had a curse because then Greg Oden ended up yep. having the same issue with Durant going second. What I didn't remember was that the Mavs were fourth. Mm-hmm. And so I looked up. And they ended, so they got that pick from Cleveland. Right. I don't know what the mechanisms were to get that pick, but well, they, believe they made they had a lot of trades with Cleveland to get a lot of picks in the eighties. I mean, and remember those, Cleveland. The, the whole reason that there's the Stepien rule, yes. which is you can't trade more than you know you can't have consecutive first round picks traded, is because of this. Yes, exactly, exactly because of all the trades that Stepien Cleveland made. Was the owner of the Cavs, Ted Stepien. Yep, all the tra- the trades that Cleveland made, many of them with the Mavs that gave away picks in the eighties. Yeah, that's why you the rule is in place that you can't trade. Future consecutive first round picks. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't draft a player and then trade his rights or something like that, where it ends up. Which that is you what do. the Mavs did with Luca. That's why they didn't technically draft Luca. Yep. They had the Hawks pick Luca because we had already conveyed a pick, you know, in the in the Knicks trade. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, or I want to think the Knicks trade, but it was something they couldn't trade that pick because they already had one traded uh, in a future year or, or vice versa, but. Cleveland actually had one game 
better of a record than Chicago. So mm-hmm. we were the Mavs right. were one game <laughs> away from at least having a coin flip to get Jordan. That's now, unbelievable. The question is, would they have picked Jordan? And everybody's seen the Randy Galloway column that has come out right. in their Twitter feed about don't pick Jordan. And remember, this is a team, we just talked to Roe last week. This was a team uh, that had Roe Blackman. It had Mark Aguirre. You kind of wonder, and they end up getting Sam Perkins. Mm-hmm. You kind of wonder, would they have still gone with Perkins because he was a better fit? And again, Jordan really, he hit the shot in 82. You know, he was the third pick. Everybody thought he was great, but it was really until the Olympics, which was a couple months after the draft, right. that he really burst onto that mega, mega scene. And of course, then we saw even from the third game on his rookie year take off. Uh, it's an interesting question. And the the other aspect of that is that I think it was really cool to see that soundbite relating to his playing the Olympics and Bob Knight. I mean, Bob Knight, who certainly you would think is going to be extremely guarded in his praise of young players who aren't, uh, who aren't Indiana. Like it's obvious that uh, the coach from North Carolina, Dean Smith. Yeah. And, and the other uh, Roy Ryan Williams, Williams yeah. are going to, are going to glow because they were his guy. Right. Right. But, but to have somebody from another uniform say that in real time, right. Right, about how good he was. So, and I guess the story is that Portland talked to Bob Knight, even though Knight uh, still hadn't coached Jordan in in the Olympics yet. But even uh, apparently Knight was telling Portland before the draft, Portland said, well, we think that we need a center. And and Bob Knight said, we'll draft him and play him at center then. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You need to draft this guy. And they didn't. And, you know, to your point about if the Mavs had been third, I mean, that's, uh, you know, you would you would like to think that they would have done that. But uh that will be one of the great unanswered mysteries of life. You know, the, the one thing that people will look back at in 1984, by the way, is they drafted Perkins at four. You know who went five in that draft? Barkley. Okay, wow. Yep. Yeah. What a draft. That's very reminiscent of the... 2003. Yes, yeah, yeah. Darko Milicic going two, and it was uh, LeBron, Wade, Bosch, and uh, Carmelo. Yep. Not in that order. Yeah. So there are some Mavs tie-ins though, that are Mavs talking points that came out of my viewing. Uh, I guess the most obvious and glaring is Rick Carlisle, uh, <laughs> being one of the, the most talked about, uh, <laughs> aspects coming out of that. And, uh, Jalen Brunson's tweet of come on coach, LOL. <laughs> what I really liked about it was that look that Carlisle gave afterwards, that kind of, you know, eyebrow raise. It's the same look he has now. And, you kind of see him playing with the gum on the on the scorer's table, and he's kind of thinking about, okay, what do I do now? What kind of defense can I throw or what substitution? Like, you, you know, you see the wheels turning. It's right. that same look that he had after, I don't know how to defend this guy. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't get called for a foul. He put two hands in the back playing post-defense on him. That should have been a foul probably. But and and I the, think he could do that then. I, I th- maybe so. Maybe so. Now you can only do one hand in the back and a, and a bent arm. But the, the, the funny thing about it is that the highlights that they showed of Rick guarding Jordan were from game one. It wasn't even the 63-point explosion. The little clip they showed where Carlisle was guarding Jordan was actually part of his 49-point effort in game one. 
one, which Boston won that game as well, barely, but much like they barely won game two, that would actually went to double overtime when Jordan had the 63. But yeah, Carlisle's moment of uh, infamy, if you will, was part of Jordan's game one performance, not even the, his, the historic 63-point game two performance. And I don't know if you saw uh, today an article came out that he's finally commented on it. And his comment was, uh, I'm surprised they even got uh, were able to find tape of me playing. <laughs> I saw uh, McMahon. I saw that tweeted yesterday, yes. as a matter of fact. And, yep. So the article came out today. He played 54 minutes in the postseason. His look of, of wonderment of how to do it was actually from the next play, where uh, not the one they actually showed. You know, they like you say, they, they, they play tricks with when they sure. show certain pieces of, of video. Um, but actually, in the next game, after the 63-point game, game three, because they did sweep that series in a, in a three out of five, um, he was actually the only person guarding Jordan that kept him scoreless. So, oh, for one, but he <laughs> did keep him scoreless. Nice job. Way to go, uh, Coach. So so Carlisle uh, was definitely one of the, the stars of, of the first one. Um, now, the other obvious thing that I kind of think of is, you know, the main talking point is, you know, this team broke up after 98. Right. And why did they have to do that? You know, mm-hmm. Jerry Krause is the villain. And so it obviously harkens to 2011 in my my mind of, of breaking up that team. Right. And while um, I, I think, you know, Mark's expressed regret about it, uh, you know, they brought back both J.J. and Tyson kind of admitting that those were mistakes. Yeah. Uh, I think Deshaun was at the end of his playing rope at that time. Peja retired. Right. Um, you know, and Cardinal probably wasn't, I think, I, I think Cardinal did play one more year. Yeah, he did. He, um, did. he came back here for another year, but I think JJ and Tyson were the, the main pieces that, sure, you know, of course. JJ signing a $16 million deal over four years with Minnesota and Tyson going on to, uh, to the Knicks and having a great year. Um, defensive player of the year yeah. and an all-star. As a matter of fact, uh, I think the next year he was defensive player of the year. But yeah, there was yeah. you know two great years where he helped New York get into the playoffs. And then after a year, Jay Kidd joined him there um, after the 2012 season. But, you know, it, it does kind of make as much as I think you and I, or at least I don't think that the Mavs would have won anymore. I think mm-hmm. that was kind of a, you know, as you and I have said, that was a take it to your effing grave playoff run right in 2011 that mm-hmm. no one had ever won on that team mm-hmm. they were older this is your shot yes yeah and as much as we may want to nostalgize and say man let's do it again and, and win another one they probably wouldn't have but i do see the the merit in uh why are you breaking up something that just won get let's you know this just nostalgic wise it's good to see it run back and it's good for the fans too. I mean, I think that's always the thing that I'll look back at that from that standpoint is that the long kiss goodnight never really got to happen. The 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 victory lap and the celebration didn't get to happen the way that it would have been nice to, for it to have happened because the parade went down. And uh, by the way, that's going to be replayed again on Fox Sports Southwest this weekend. And I want to mention some other stuff that's about to be replayed on Fox Sports Southwest as well. By the but, way, we're going to get to our mailbag here. Yeah. Uh, yep. Right after our, our last dance talk. But, but uh, you know, the, the thing about 2011 was that the, the, the parade happened and everybody was on the stage together. And then if you recall, Brian, I mean, basically 19, 18 days later it was June 30th and that's when the lockout kicked in. And right. so there was, you know, and then it's basically, you know, everything talking about the players, talking about anything related to the league stops at that point. So and it didn't you couldn't start again until Christmas day. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, 
everything was settled right after Thanksgiving. I remember being in Austin and getting a text from you, as a matter of fact, that that uh, you know that everything was settled because I was down there doing some work for the Longhorn Network at that particular point in time. So I, I think that that the shame of it is is that there was never the last time that uh, that group of guys was together was on the floor at the parade. Uh, and and look, I mean, some of them would have gone on. But the fact that, uh, you know, significant players of the team went on and the whole like the, the, the real core of the team didn't get to come back. And if nothing else, I think it would have been great for the fans to have that year of celebration and victory lap and, uh, you know, the excitement of, of wondering, well, how good can they be when, once the playoffs start? But I think we just missed out on something that was, uh, you know, that's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, this is supposed to be fun and entertaining and, you know, uh, that kind of thing for the fans, and and that's what was missed out on. And, and you know, the rationale, of course, was uh, with the new CBA that came after that lockout, mm-hmm. there were repeater taxes, yep. much more aggressive taxes, and so the idea was to kind of try to get ahead of that. Uh, of course, what wasn't anticipated was the the huge spike in TV revenue, which basically made that irrelevant because the cap went up so much that you would have been able to stomach those mm-hmm. Tyson and JJ contracts. But regardless, uh, it just, it just got me thinking about the breakup and even to a some extent, um, you know, letting go of Nash early, which Mark has me a couple many times, um, you know, would, you know, that was the idea that Krause had was let's get, let's get rid of Pippen while we can mm-hmm. get something for him because he's aging. Of course he did have many more great years with the Rockets and, and, Portland. Matter of fact, he was on the floor during the Mavs 2003 series, Mavs in Portland. Right. Scottie Pippen was part of that Portland team, the yeah. the series that went seven games after Dallas went up 3-0 and then lost yes. three straight and then won game seven. The one where fashion. I thought I was getting fired. My very first playoff series as an employee, yes. <laughs> I'm glad you survived it. <laughs> yes, I believe it was a Sunday afternoon game seven that I yeah. was uh, very, very nervously watching. Uh, but that did, you know, that brought up those memories. Um and I don't know if you have anything that kind of came to the top of your head. I've got a couple more, but uh, well, just just I did get a I chance. Know that you you saw him play as a bull. Yes, I did, and I was at the last game, the nineteen point. You know, it's it's really from from the nineties, and given how the nineties were such a lean decade for Mavericks basketball, Brian. I think that the uh, one of the really like most memorable nineties moments for the Mavs, and this is. A good story, but it's also kind of sad in a way, is that uh, the last visit of the Jordan-era Bulls into Dallas in March of 1998 was them blowing a 19-point lead with, like, and yeah, the Bulls blowing a 19-point lead in the fourth quarter and Dallas coming back and tying the game on a Cedric Sabalos uh, three-pointer with a few seconds to go and then winning the game in overtime. And I would be shocked if that didn't play a role in this documentary as this goes on with that yeah. season because... They went on a big winning streak right after I've that. I've seen comments uh, in articles that Jordan references that game in terms right. of how they were stumbling you know, mm-hmm. down the stretch. That and was that, in March, I believe? It was, yes. That ended their stumble. I believe they got on a very long winning streak after they spit the bit in that game here in Dallas. So that's that's a game that will always stick out in my mind. Uh, and I thought of that the other night. And, and wondered you were, you were when working we're that it. game. Yes, not in a Mavericks broadcasting capacity. I was there as a uh, soundbite, get, get 
get tape, as we called it. So did you get yeah. tape from Jordan? Um, I don't remember going into the Bulls locker room. I think we must have split that up. Thrusting I think... your Gantner when that was called? <laughs> a Morantz tape Marantz, recorder. Yeah, yeah Morantz, your cassette tape recorder. No, I think I probably would have been in the Mavs locker room, and we probably had somebody else. We probably had two reporters there for that, but given the magnitude of it. So someone covered the Mavs and someone covered uh, I thought for sure you would try to impress MJ with some <laughs> insightful question that had too many stats in it or something. Uh, I, I was there for, uh, yeah, gathering tape purposes after the game for the ticket. And then, uh, obviously, the only games I ever broadcast involving Jordan were the the four games that he played against the Mavs in his two seasons with the Washington Wizards, uh, 2001 through 2003. And I don't remember much about those other than the first game. I remember the buzz in the arena. It was a Saturday night in early December 2001 when Washington would have played here, and there was certainly excitement and buzz about getting to see Jordan back. But uh, the other games beyond that don't stand out uh, to me as having any sort of uh, real buzz or significance or, or unique energy about them. The Jordan games I'll always remember here that, that I was connected to was that first game with, with Washington, but even more importantly, the, what surrounded that last game with Chicago. And you did, but you've called Michael Jordan games. That's yeah. something yeah. definitely uh, feather, feather in your cap for sure. Yeah, obviously some other, you know, I think what's going to come out in this documentary is more and more, and you saw a little bit of it, is how hard he was on his teammates. Right. You know, and, and I guess the debate is, okay, you know, the apologists are like, well, you know, that's what he needed to do to toughen them up and get them ready for playoff, you know, competition, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he punched Steve Kerr at a practice. He, oh. was, uh, he was really, really hard on teammates. And he doesn't apologize for it. He's very much like that's what was needed. Um, and I just don't subscribe to that. I think that you can lead in different ways. And obviously, Dirk has shown that you mm-hmm. can lead in a, um, you know, I've, you've seen it. I've seen it in the locker room. It is a loose, fun atmosphere when he was there and still is today from what I understand. Um, but you got your work done. You know, yes. No cell phones. You got your work done. You were chastised if you were late or not doing what you needed to do, but it was still could be a fun, towel-snapping, joke-around environment. I don't think it has to be the way Jordan does it to get success. I would concur with that. There are different ways to lead, and uh, you know, maybe the maybe the more winning that you do, maybe maybe you know, you do have to to demand things and push people harder because complacency sets in yeah. once you've won multiple titles in a row. So perhaps that was the motivation by behind it. But look, I think that uh, we have seen throughout the NBA, we see it in other sports as well. Clearly, there are different ways to lead. And um, there are, it, it worked out here with Dirk and winning a title and other guys on the team too. I mean, Jason Kidd was a big part of that and Tyson and so many people. You know, it doesn't have to be one guy driving everybody. It can be multiple people that do it. But you look to your best player at, at some level for uh, setting the tone. Right. And so I think that's why you saw, you know, back in the day, people like Van Exel really uh, fit in well, even mm-hmm. though he was labeled a troublemaker at other stops. Uh, people like that because it was kind of a, you know, looser, fun atmosphere, but you got your work done. And, right. and I think Nash set that tone and Dirk definitely after he was gone, you know, took over that mantle. Um, so, you know, Kobe Bryant was definitely like that, like Jordan was mm-hmm. in terms of 
you know, and that's why things with Dwight Howard and other teammates didn't really work. Obviously, his issue with Shaq. Um, so, yeah, different styles, and I have no problem with people being authentic to who they are and how they want to approach it, but I don't right. think that's the only way, is yeah. my point. Yeah, I would, I would concur with you on that, for sure. Uh, the last point I have, unless you don't have anything other, it's kind of, is my personal Jordan story. I've been fortunate to meet him a few times, and mm-hmm. the one that sticks out in my head uh, I was a charity golf tournament story uh, the night before there was, you know, relatively small gathering, like 50 people at this uh, kind of cocktail party, if you will. And for some reason, I found myself in a circle with, with him, uh, one of his buddies and two NBA players. So I won't mention it's not Dirk. Okay. I'm just so I can kind of, <laughs> okay. you know, assuage those because of my connections. But, um, and I was the guy that was just kind of, standing there and with my eyes kind of recording it so I could remember as much as I wanted. Right. And, and you've seen kind of how competitive it is and how he would gamble on the golf course. And so I can tell you firsthand. So somebody had paid a good amount of money to, to play with him in this tournament about 11 AM mm-hmm. and he sit there and he, so he tells his friend who was kind of a security guy with him and, and the two NBA players, uh, okay, well, 11's the start of the tournament. Uh, we're getting there at eight. And it's going to be five grand a hole. We're going to play 18 before the tournament. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and then after the tournament, we're going to play another nine at five grand a hole. <laughs> and he wasn't asking. He was telling. <laughs> wow. And it's one of those things where you can't really tell MJ no. Yeah, you can't. You're that player. You're like, okay, I guess that's the, the deal. And wow. so he played the, you know, and I'm sure he had some money going with whoever he was playing with. Maybe not, you know, not those stakes during the, the charity part. Right. But other than that, he had 27 holes. He had 135 on the table. That's crazy, man. He played, you know, <laughs> uh, 45 holes of golf that day. And, and mind you, this conversation was happening at 1.30 in the morning with all of us uh, several drinks in. <laughs> and this golf course was 30 minutes away. So he was going to wake up at you know 6.30 and get on the range by 7.30 and, and be ready to go. At 8 o'clock at $5,000 a hole. Yeah. That is... Now, I did not ever find out the results. Yeah. But uh, that, yeah, that was... that. I was just like, whoa. You you do not mess around when MJ's around. Yeah, you don't. You don't. It's amazing to me how golf, even in the first in the first night of this, did was a factor in it. I by thought, the way. yeah, that, I was I've, always, I've always heard that story. By the way, I've heard that story the before. Ainge the story. Danny Ainge I did story. Not know that. Yeah, the, and, the, and you hear a conversation. Oh, how can you know? A lot of the older players like Barkley will say, "How can you chum around?" And, and I see to some extent, but. I also see Jordan using it as mind games. Like, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to, you know, just use this time to screw with you. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when we were, we, we talked with Rolando Blackman about Moody Madness last week, and that was one of the things that he noted is that Magic, you know, during his time at the Lakers would try to, you know, during playoff series, during off time was a very friendly, gregarious guy and, and you know, Derek Harper's talked to me about this before and Rob mentioned that as well. And it's just like, you know, you've got to like kind of at some point draw the line. It's like, no, man, I'm not going to be like socializing and fraternizing with you on off days during this series. when we're out there, you know, in a battle trying to determine who moves on and who goes home in the playoffs. Yeah. And even when, when Nash came in, you know, in 05 and 06, after he left, um, you know, they would not, he and Dirk would not hang out during the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me in the least. I mean, I, I I understand why that is, and 
yeah, there's, I, I think that, uh, the one story I always heard about that is that Nash and Dirk like exchanged some texts before the Western conference finals in 2006. And just basically that man, can you believe that one of us is about to go to the NBA finals? Yeah. And that was really the extent of it, you know, that there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't, there was that text exchange, but other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of like palling around or anything like that. Right. Well, yeah, we look forward to the rest of this in our sports starved we need it. environment. And, and just like when we did Moody Madness, I think it's great for a lot of the, you know, fans that are, gosh, from 30 and under to, to see this version of, of Jordan and to see how dominant those teams were. And as I, a, I mentioned that to somebody on Twitter the other day, as a matter of fact, someone said that, well, I watched the first hour and I felt like I knew everything that they were talking about in the first hour. And I said, well, I mean, this, the, the purpose of this show is, is, is much bigger than that. You know, it's, it's to introduce, there's people basically under 30 have not seen him play for the bulls. You know, if, if you're under 30, at least if you're up at 30, you might remember a little bit of his time with the wizards being on the floor, but you're not going to remember really anything that he did with the Chicago bulls. So there's a pretty big audience out there that is being introduced to the early stages of Jordan. Yeah. And, and you know, I forgot that he was hurt most of his second year and that, the 63 points was in his, you know, second ever playoff game. I mean, I remember watching that game, but, uh, and I think part of the reason Jordan did this was because he saw, you know, LeBron winning in 16. He agreed to do this documentary on the day of the Cleveland parade mm-hmm. in 2016. So you know, he's a very competitive person and he doesn't yeah. want his legacy forgotten. And so, um, you know, that's why this is being done. And I think it'll be, it'll be good for that whole, uh, you know, that whole uh, storyline. But we have a mailbag to get to. We have we do. Our, our 77ers, uh, our heaveners, fans have sent us questions. So I'm going to let you fire those off and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll start at answering some of those. I put the call out for any Mavericks NBA sports uh, life or travel questions. So we probably do have the gamut here, Brian. Um, question one from... Sam Williams, Sam, at Sam and Nash on Twitter. All these questions came in via the Twitterverse. What do you see happening with Tim Hardaway Jr. this offseason? I'm assuming he's played well enough to opt out of his deal at this point, right? Well, on the back half of that, I would say that before the league stopped down for coronavirus, I might have agreed that he would have considered that. But now, given the loss of revenue, what that's going to do to the cap, and what that's going to do to available money, then I would think that him opting in and not opting out would be a much more likely scenario. Agree or disagree? Uh, it's an interesting case because we don't know how the league and the players' association is going to handle this. You remember when the spike increase happened in 2016, the, the players' association wanted it all in one year. Yeah, they didn't want smoothing. Because the older players were like, I want mine now. Right. And they basically convince the younger players was a smart thing to do. Smoothing would have been the better thing, but because those who happen to be free in 2016 reap those benefits rather than everybody. Having said that, I would think smoothing is going to be what they want now because it's going down. Because instead of having this drop, then those players who are free now are going to get penalized Mm -hmm. because their number, which is associated with the cap, uh, is going to go much, much lower. And so if it's smoothing, then um, you're going to want to, you know, then it, it doesn't really matter. Everybody's going to take a little haircut. You might as well just get yours when the getting's good. Now, having said that, yes, he's got $18 million on his last year. 
Um, he has to weigh the injury risk, the level of play risk versus getting, you know, what would have been maybe $60 million that may be now $50 million long term. You know, I've thought about the th- the thing that you said too with the with the smoothing aspect of it, and and you know, I, I wonder how much of that. I mean, there's going to be a pretty big. I'm assuming anyway, there's going to be a pretty big number in terms of loss of revenue. Yeah. Um, now we're talking twenty, twenty five percent, something like that. Again, we're just assuming uh, we start playing somewhere because the major portion is TV money. Yes. So they want to get TV games even without, uh, you know, baseball is a different animal. Baseball gets most of their money from local TV deals, but actually most, most of it, the, the biggest chunk is, is attendance. Yes. They have, they have all these games, mm-hmm. 81 home games. Uh, basketball is vast, vast majority of their money comes from national TV, mm-hmm. TNT and ESPN. So if they can get it even without fans, then they're going to get their money from that. Yeah, yeah. And that, so the, the the hit won't be as significant. Uh, next question. But to the other point, I think the Mavs do want to secure him long term. Oh yes, I do. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. I'm glad Remember you. When he came in, he was he was salary filler. Mm-hmm. You know, take him off our hands. The Knicks said. Right. And he's been a pleasant surprise, especially when put in the starting lineup, getting those open looks, uh, converting him, his hustle on D. Uh, which Mark has talked about to us on the post-game show, mm-hmm. um, they do, and, and they've already kind of mentioned to him and his people that they do want to lock him up long-term. Yeah, And I don't think it'll be a, that big of a number, like 18, but he wants the long-term security. I think that's how it is going to end up. You know what the what the exact roadmap to get there looks like. I don't know, but Tim Hardaway Jr. I think is with the Mavs for the foreseeable future. Right. Yeah. Not not just one more year. I think for the foreseeable future. Um, will there be Major League Baseball or any of the Big Four sports on July fourth? Yes, there will be. This is from uh, at CP Creasy, by the way, or at. CPR or CPCR easy. I'm I'm not exactly sure what, but uh, but that's what the uh, that's what the Twitter name is. Yes. When, you know, when do we think sports will resume? Um, before July the fourth. Yes, there will be resumption. Uh, who and what and how obviously remains to be seen. Uh, Major League Soccer MLS has mentioned that June 8th is a target date for them. Now, I don't know if that's return to play or at least return to team training sessions with the idea of starting play very shortly afterwards. Uh, There is a report that's come out within the last 24 hours, Brian, that the NHL is looking at playing games in NHL arenas rather than playing them in a neutral site bubble, something that has been talked about with the NBA. Uh, that report has come out. Florida, uh, the CEO of the Florida Panthers, I guess, mentioned it on a media conference call, said it hasn't been finalized, but that's something that they're looking at is playing games in NHL arenas uh, and maybe moving around to different arenas and having multiple games a day in NHL arenas rather than non-NHL venues in just one bubble. And I think uh, the reason for that is if you want to do multiple games a day mm-hmm. so that a national partner can pay you for that, right? one venue, you can only play a certain number of games. Right. And you're going to want to play more than that. Mm-hmm. So you have to have multiple venues. And so that's, I think that's the thinking behind that. So July is their target date on that. Um, yes, I think that we've heard enough talk about different Major League Baseball plans uh, of playing in Florida, Arizona, 
state of Texas has come up, that I think that they will have some plan to get things off the ground by the 4th of July. As far as the NBA, uh, Adam Silver just continues to say that there's really no point at this at this moment in getting into timetables. Um, you know, as we sit here and, and record this on April the 22nd, um, the NBA going again in terms of actually playing games by the 1st of July, that's probably about the best we can hope for at this point. And I think there's a hunger on both the owners and players' side to play yes. simply because of the money. Yes, absolutely. That is the, that is uh, going the to be the driving force the at the end of the day. Salaries going to the players. Players, I think, on their next check, May 1st, or May, I, I, I believe that's correct, are going to start seeing cuts in their salary yes. yep. coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's real money out of their pocket that they're going to want to get back. So, and, and, and the, you know, I think that basketball, you know, they can find – Somewhere they may have to do similar to NHL, where instead of one place, because of the need to, you know, have, well, I guess you tell me in terms of national versus local. I mean, local still has, you know, they still pay for their rights. So it's not like every game you can just put on national TV and stagger the start time starting at 8 a.m. Yeah, no, I, I think that yeah, you're, you're going to try to do whatever you can to make your local TV partners as whole as you can from this season as well. So, I mean, I think that, that, that's why there would be the desire to have a handful of regular season games because a, you wouldn't be playing your most important games without any sort of lead up and run up to kind of reestablish rhythm and continuity as individuals and teams. And also because of the, you know, of, of, of what they feel like they owe to their local slash regional broadcast partners to, to get them a handful of regular season games. And presumably we would get to do as we've always done and to get to televise the first round as well. But as I've I've said uh, when I've been on my interviews on the ticket, and I think I've said this on the podcast as well. I mean, I anticipate that, that uh, broadcast will be doing the game local broadcast. Anyway, we'll be doing the game remotely. We'll be doing the game off a monitor in a studio, something we do quite frequently in soccer. We do this with FC Dallas when they go on the road. Uh, It was well publicized that we did this, uh, not everybody, but we did this with the world cup for Fox uh, back in 2018. uh, When I did Olympic soccer in 2016 in Rio, uh, I did those games from the NBC sports broadcast headquarters in Stanford, Connecticut. So uh, in the soccer world, this is a thing that happens because it's a global game and just, you know, moving people all over the globe to to cover the game just isn't, you know, isn't really very cost effective. Uh, this will be clearly uncharted waters from an NBA standpoint, other than the occasional overseas pre preseason game that we've done from a studio. But that's that's how I think it will end up for us. And to answer the initial question about all of this, yes, I think there will be some sports by July the 4th. And listeners can go back to Casey Smith's uh, interview we had with him a couple weeks ago on how the the league and the Mavs, you know, what they anticipate in terms of what that ramp up should look like, training camp and all that. I think what's interesting in the Mavs perspective is, um, and we talked about this last week with Moody Madness, you know, 84 Moody Madness started the, you know, they they kind of got in, you know, they felt playoff basketball and yes. it started the run. Mm-hmm. Utah in 01 started the Mavs run and then they got spanked the next series. Yeah, by San Antonio. And you need that too. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm disappointed that even if there is basketball and it's no fan playoffs, it's going to be smaller, shorter series. Uh, it won't be the same. And, and I, I, I was looking forward to whatever happened, whether they got a series win and then got spanked or lost at some point. I don't. I think you and I both think that we weren't going to win the title this year. They needed to. I, I, I think it's unfortunate they weren't able to kind of get that phase of their development done. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. 
for Luca and for Porzingis because from from day one of the start of training camp, to me, it's like this this group needs to make the playoffs this year because and then anything else past that is gravy. But get in the playoffs, experience that atmosphere. And that's going to be very, very critical for development. So uh, hopefully they'll get to experience it, but it won't be what we're accustomed to seeing. Yeah. So, but something is better than nothing. Um, next question: Your favorite city you travel to during the season? Uh, quick answer to that: Not the easiest one, but I have thought about it. And given that there's just so many different, unique things to do, uh, you you never run out of things to do in New York. So that will always be my favorite city to travel to. Yeah, I would say that's my favorite city. In the country. I mean, there's warm weather cities that I love and, and, but just the, you know, New York at the holidays or in the springtime and just the vast amount of experiences that you can have there. And if you ask players, would I would say Atlanta, Miami, Miami, New York, and LA. <laughs> and so if you ever have day games in those cities, uh, bet the home team. <laughs> All right. Next question. By the way, the last question was from Austin S. Thank you, Austin, for that question. Next is from Drew. Uh, his Twitter handle is Dalbert the Kid. Expectations for whether the Mavs will keep first and early second round picks. Which player fits intrigue you? I haven't done any draft research, so that part of it I can't really answer. As far as my expectations for what they'll do with their with their picks, which is uh, they'll have a pick, you know, presumably around twenty in the first round, and then they'll have that Golden State pick very early in the second round. Could be the first pick of the second round, possibly, but somewhere in the low thirties, thirty one, thirty two, thirty three, somewhere in that that range. They need players on good contracts right now, so I, I would not anticipate moving those players. I mean, there is certainly some value as we've discussed with that second round pick, but I think we felt like that the value for that second round pick was attaching it to something at the trade deadline back in February. And clearly that didn't happen. Brian. Yeah. They could have gotten Danny green because the Lakers needed to open up space for Marcus Morris. Then yes, I think the two would have been the price of poker. Yes. And, and that was a rumored trade that, yes. uh, that was, that was in the mix. And, and you would have uh, seen them do that, but that's a very valuable pick because it doesn't have the guarantees on it. Right. Right. The first round pick does. Picks after the first round. Um, and first round picks are valuable, you know, because you want to use those assets to uh, get, you know, a significant piece in a trade if you can. And if not, then you, you know, you make your picks. So, yeah, I don't think there's any reason to, to get off those picks just to, to do it. You know, the odds of getting a significant player out of that aren't great. But, uh, you know, and I'm like you, I have no idea you know, what the draft's going to look like or even when that's going to occur and that's going to be down the road when I start looking at some stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I don't think the NBA draft will happen in June. I, no, just, there's no chance. Yeah. yeah. By definition, the season has to be over. <laughs> so I think that that's going to get pushed back and, and you know, teams probably want to be able to, you know, to be able to make draft picks without having to do it all based on watching workouts on videos and interviews on videos. At some point, teams, before they make that sort of investment and future players are going to want to be able to see them face-to-face. Now, th- there could be a chance that trade negotiations, trade trades could, uh, before the free agency, before the draft, be reignited. You can use that second-round pick still. Right, right. Well, s- still much to be figured out in terms of what the summer and fall look like for the NBA, but at least sitting here right now, I would think that they would make those picks just to, to add depth to the team at this point. What is, from Luka Doncic's, 
great Twitter follow, by the way, and uh, always with great information on the shoes that Luca is wearing, the kicks. What is your and Brian Damaris's favorite all-time Mavs jersey? Also, what's one sports venue, any sport you have not yet visited that you wish to make it to someday? What's your favorite Mavs jersey? I would say the original home, white, uh, from the from the 80s, the Moody Madness, you know, with the hat on it. Yep. And- and all that. I love that. Even as someone growing up in Houston, I always loved that that jersey. Mine is the green jersey from that era. The green road jersey from that era is my favorite Mavs jersey. Absolutely. We'll always love that with the basketball hat logo and the way Dallas was written on it. That are, that is my That's my favorite Mavericks jersey. Uh, the other part of that question was, all right, sports venue, any sport you have not yet visited that you wish to make it to someday? Um, I would say... You know, I, I would love to go to Wimbledon at some point, but mm-hmm. I would say that uh, that Notre Dame Stadium and uh, Lambeau would be the two that I have and I'm going to do here, hopefully, you know, hopefully at some point soon. You know, a, a little while ago, I said I would save this for the mailbag. I was talking about plans for the big birthday next year that both you and I will have in 2021. The big uh, 5-0, David Robinson, the Admiral. 5 as Avery Johnson used to call David Robinson. Bobby Joe Reed. <laughs> nice. Um, and, and, of course, the world has changed a lot since this plan was on my mind several months ago. But I informed the wifey that... Uh, for 2021, our summer vacation was going to be to go see the Tour de France in person. Ah. Now, that's not really – so I feel like that answer is not being true to what the question was, which is well, what just sports being on the venue. Just the Champs-Élysées as they yeah. come down the nice day. I mean, yeah, does going on – is being on Alpe d'Huez or Mont Ventoux for, for the Tour no de France, is that – <laughs> those are famous climbs okay. in the Tour. Are those – does that count as a sports venue? Are you going to try to ride along with them? Uh, you know, you can actually ride those stages before. That's what – lot of people do is 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 cycling enthusiasts that are there like during the oh you know what that that uh is that so that documentary icarus on netflix Mm -hmm. he talks about that guy how he started on that whole journey of finding out about it was he he did the the i guess the grueliest the gruelest is that a word? Gruel? Gruelist? Uh, the, the, the most grueling yes yes uh, yes gruel is like porridge yeah bike race right and he did it one year, and then he took the dope and did it the second year, and was trying to, to you know, find the advantage. Um, is that that one, or is that a different race? No, for the for the tour, you know, it's it's individual stages over the course of three weeks. So what you can do, though, as a cycling enthusiast, is that you can ride the route before the cyclists come through. Uh, earlier in the day, it's not uncommon oh, to see okay. to see people riding to position to watch. The to watch the guys come up the mountain. It's not uncommon to see cyclists going up the hill on their own to get into a position where they want to watch people. So you can. It's unstable about how they just crowd the road. There's really no crowd (laughs) control at all. It's chaos, man. It's some incredible, something incredible. And you know, this year the event has been delayed. They want to try to do this and do it, you know, with fans being able to watch along the roads. And, you know, I have loved this event for so long and the French countryside and the scenery in France looks so amazing. And so that's that's the that's the the event I would want to go to. How long is how long from the first rider to the last if you're just standing there? Well, it depends on if it's a flat stage or if it's a mountain stage. I mean, if it's a mountain stage, it could be 30 minute separation, you know. But if it's a flat stage, then I mean, you're going to have uh, you know, 170 of the 180 riders are going to be in the main peloton, you know, typically on a flat stage, and you're just going to have a few stragglers in the back that wouldn't be that far. So in the it's back. like when I did the running of the bulls, and it was over and about. 
30 seconds because they just go right by you. Yeah. Yeah. If you're on, if you're watching a flat stage, yeah, then you're, you're going to see them go right by you pretty quick. And I watched from inside and I didn't run with them. <laughs> I want to make sure that's clear. Uh, the, the actual venue, that's, that's the event, but I don't want to count like the whole country of France as a venue. If I were going to pick a venue, it would probably be any sort of high level uh, soccer stadium in England for a Premier League game. And, of course, Arsenal, who plays it, that's that's the club that I follow most closely. They play at the Emirates, so that would be the number one choice, I guess. But uh, but to see Premier League games in person at at any number of different venues would probably be my number so one I choice. Did, I have been to the Man City Stadium. Yeah, the Etihad. And to Everton Stadium. Yep, Goodison Park. And then la- uh, two years ago, I saw, or three years ago, um, I saw a Champions League game between Real Madrid and... Uh, Tottenham at Wembley. Yes. Wembley, yeah, because that's when the awesome. new, yeah, the new White Hart Lane, White Hart Lane was was under uh, construction. They were doing their their refurbishing, remodeling, redoing of White Hart Lane. So you saw them so, at Wembley. Yeah. So yeah. So that was pretty amazing. That but, would be. That would, would be amazing. That, uh, while new Wembley's great, I'm glad I did that. Everton was my favorite because that is the barn like stadium that right. is. You know, it's not. It, it's it's the small rickety benches. Um, next up is the great Tyler Adams, big time MFFL that we hear from on the Twitterverse often. Which city or country should the Mavs play a future preseason game in? Um, I think you're either going to play a game in Puerto Rico as an homage to JJ, or you're going to play in Spain because of Lucas' connection to Real Madrid. Yeah, I agree. There has to be some connection to a player. Right. And I think my first one would be Puerto Rico, for sure. I guess the question, of course, is going to be what JJ's future in terms of, you know, does he play next year? You know, how much longer is he going to play? I think he wants to. Yeah, you know? I don't think I don't see why he wouldn't now that, you know, there's been a break and he's healthy and, you know, there's not as much wear and tear on him. Uh, the Luca one's interesting because, you know, you have Porzingis and Luca from small countries. Uh, you know, do you go to those or do you just, like you say, uh, Cut it down the middle and just do it in Spain. Yeah, and Porzingis, of course, played there as well. But uh, you know that was that was a, a very early time in his career. It wasn't having the impact that Luca had. Obviously, an early time in Luca's career that he played in Spain. But at Real Madrid, he was winning Euroleague. So I mean, there was such an indelible mark as a very young player that Luca left and I, on Real Madrid. So I think playing in Madrid would be where it would where it would go down. And I think it's a no brainer that the Mavs were are going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be one of the teams that travels overseas yes. in the preseason here very shortly. Um, let's see from my buddy at Reddit Mavericks. When traveling, what is one dish that you have to have? Uh, we have talked about some of my favorite restaurants, but I don't know that I actually, I, I don't know that I did uh, the, 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 the must-have dishes. So just a couple of them real quick. Memphis, it has to be the pork shoulder sandwich at Rendezvous Barbecue. San Antonio, it has to be the chicken mole enchiladas at Rosario's. And uh, Mendocino Farms, when I go to that, that was not on my list of favorite restaurants. I didn't put that on there, but that's the the very like kind of farm-to-table style sandwich shop that started in Southern California and actually has expanded to Houston, Brian, and had just opened up a location on Ross Avenue in downtown Dallas, but they are not open during the closure of restaurants due to the, oh, to the coronavirus pandemic. There. Yeah, there's, they're not even doing any takeout or, or anything. That restaurant was just getting off the ground and they're not, and they're completely closed at this point during, uh, during the shutdown due to the pandemic. So at the, uh, at the Southern California Mendocino Farms locations, though, I always get a pork belly banh mi sandwich. That is phenomenal. So that's a must-have every time I go out to L.A. Right. now. 
Uh, I know that sounds sad that a chain restaurant out L.A. is, but it's not a big chain. It's an L.A. chain that's now started to expand. Uh, but those are those are some um, from Ticket Chet. Happy birthday, Damaris. What were each of your earliest sports memories? Something that stuck with you, not necessarily a hero, but first sports hero would be great as well. I'll hang up and listen. Uh, well, first sports hero, Earl Campbell. Wow. Yeah. Houston Oilers, huh? Yeah, Tyler Rose, who I got to meet last year for the first time. Oh, wow. At a charity event. And I, I was proud of myself because I, you know, he, he uses a walker. It's very hard for him to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just walked up to him and said, I'm from Houston. And thank you so much for everything you did. And I, he said, thank you, man. And I walked right off and I was very, I did not. Man. For a picture. What? Uh, that is amazing I said, I self-control. I don't want to just. I don't want to use him for a pick for my own likes on it. I just want to truly tell him thank you for the pleasure you gave me in watching you play. Well, that's really awesome, man. That's very cool. So what's your first sports memory? Uh, he said, thank you, dude. Sorry, I got a dude. Thank you, dude. <laughs> uh, my first sports memory is actually the Cowboys uh, and the um, Eagles from the Superdome in the Super Bowl. 1970 Cowboys and Broncos Broncos yes Cowboys me. and Broncos yep yep um, yes the, the orange crush game sorry that's yeah. why I paused because I was like Eagles yeah no yes no the, my, my, my Cowboy Eagle memory is losing to the Eagles in the NFC championship game when Philadelphia went to the Super Bowl to play the Oakland Raiders and losing but on first sports memory that is actually mine as well um is is that whole that that, that season I guess is the first sports memory because I do remember seeing and remembering being with my mom and dad and watching some of the games in that season and, you know, what a big deal it was for Tony Dorsett as a rookie. I mean, now a thousand yards rushing is no big deal, but that was a big deal in 1977 under a 14 game schedule. And just the game was played a different way then. So remembering Dorsett getting to a thousand yards for the season in the last game, I think he ended up with a thousand and six yards rushing for that year as a rookie. And then that, that uh, very sloppily played, uh, Super Bowl, by the way, that had, I think, like eight turnovers for the Broncos in it by the time it was all said and done. Uh, Craig Morton had a terrible game. But, of course, the the Cowboys won the game 27-10 to 10 with plays that still all these years later stand out. The one that I remember got my dad the most excited was the halfback pass by Robert Newhouse to Golden Richards, which was basically the touchdown that sealed it. But earlier in the game, probably one of the most famous highlights is the long pass down the middle of the field that Butch Johnson dives and catches and would never be a catch under today's rules, by the way. Right. Uh, but was a catch right on the goal line for a touchdown uh, in the third quarter that helped the Cowboys open up a little bit of a bigger lead. So, you know, that, that whole season is my first sports memory culminating in that particular game. And first sports hero, since I guess I probably probably shouldn't say like David Von Erich from my days of watching <laughs> wrestling and, and things like that. Hey, David Von Erich was a hero of mine, man. He was, no doubt about that. And Fritz as well, all those guys. But uh, the first sports hero would be Roger Staubach. Yeah, and, course, and have had, yeah, yeah. And have had uh, a couple of interactions with him, uh, have not bothered him for a picture. They've been very brief at Maverick Games. And, and, you know, he, you don't kind of go up and say, do you know who I am? No, no, I did not. And I was actually, I, I, I feel like that he walked by and kind of started engaging us in a conversation before a playoff game about, you know, what we thought, what we were expecting. Don't interrupt me while I'm prepping. And I just like was so taken aback. It's like, man, he's like stopping to talk to me. And it's like, I, I can't believe this. And so I've, uh, yeah, I have avoided 
uh, they have been very, very short interfacings, and I've never really had the chance to like uh, say what I would like to say uh, and to, to Roger. But that would be the first sports hero for sure. And I would say an early memory, my first time at the Astrodome in Houston uh, was a Baylor-Rice game. My dad went to Rice, and he took me way up top, the yeah. gold section, before it turned into the rainbow section. And, and I actually remember this. I was petrified because I had no idea how, I think my brother who, you know, I've talked about before, who'd like to terrorize me, <laughs> told me that the roof had caved in last year because, you know, it's just, it's a big roof. There's no pole in the middle holding it up. So, so you just I was, never know. <laughs> yeah. So you never know it can fall in. So I spent the whole game looking at the roof and telling my dad that, Hey, I got it. If it starts coming down, you know, I'll be the first to know we can get out of here. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's a good sports memory. I like that. All right. Thanks you for the, thank you for the question at Ticket Chet. And the last question for our mailbag edition of 77 Minutes in Heaven is from Michael Martz uh, at Burn Mike Burn. Assuming the Mavs have a cap, max cap slot for the 2022 offseason, how do you approach the offseason? Swing for a max slot guy or look to improve upon the number three to six guys around Luca and KP. Which approach do y'all believe is more realistic? Long time to go between now and then. A lot of dominoes to fall. But if I'm answering the question right now, uh, I'm going after the max cap guy. I'm going after the, the big name guy. So the question of whether I have a max slot, uh, you know, we'll have to see how the, the cap plays out. Uh, obviously, re-signing Hardaway cuts into that. Good point. Um, all that. But regardless, I think the gist of the question is, what is the missing piece? Is it a max type player mm -hmm. or is it a couple of significant role players? Mm -hmm. And I think I take the opposite view of you. Um, I don't think we need a, you know, a max guy. I think we need, because if you really look at what we're going to close games with, you know, if you're resigning Hardaway, he's going to be one of them. Mm -hmm. And you've got Chris Stops and Luca. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're playing Luca, I mean, excuse me, Kristaps at the five in these lineups, then you've got two more spots. Well, one of them is going to be a lockdown defender. I'm assuming because of the way that Finney is, is shooting now, then he can be on the floor. Then he can lock down and be able to be a corner shooter. Right. Which leaves you one spot. Mm -hmm. Now that's that two or three, a wing. Right. In your mind, that's a max player. And if there's a max player, if it's a Bradley Beal, great. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it just needs to be somebody who can play make a little bit, hit the shot, defend, just play that role really well. I don't know that it has to be a you know, Kemba Walker, Bradley Beal type player. I think probably the reason I feel that way is because I look at that as the last chance to make a significant talent addition to the team before Luca's big money contract kicks in. So, you know, clearly there are always, you never know what can come up in trades and things like that. But in terms of entering the... So Danny Green, in your yeah. mind, does not qualify? Um, No, that would not. That would not qualify. That would be, to me, that would be like you're, you're improving your role players. So you're, at looking, at a, you're looking at a Bradley Beal or, or somebody like that, like yeah. a real megastar. Yeah, uh, an all-star caliber player. Okay. Doesn't, you know, doesn't so, have to be megastar. Well, and, and without using... Kemba as the example because of the way he plays, but a Kemba type level player. Yes, yes, a, a player that's capable of being 
that has demonstrated all-star capabilities elsewhere. Okay. Yeah, if you're going to go out into the free agent market. That sort of player. Who it is, what position they play, that sort of thing. I mean, you know, who knows between now and then. But but my thought sitting here two years out from that is, yes, that's the direction I'm going to go because I'm looking at how can I add the highest level of talent I can add while I have money to work with before Luca's big money kicks in along with the big money that Porzingis is going to be on. And I guess I don't disagree with that too much. I, in other words, I wouldn't be disappointed if it was a Danny Green type player, but I want to make the right bet on that Max player. In yeah. other words, why I didn't think Kemba was the right fit is because he was so ball dominant. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if it was Bradley Beal, yes, I, t- today, mm-hmm. right? And realistically, I think that's when that play has to happen. This this summer, there just aren't a lot of free agents. There's not a lot out there. Right. I think re-signing Tim and kind of bringing back who you got is going to be what we do. Mm-hmm. That's going to be the play because then Luca is going to be extension eligible a few months after that 2021 yep. free agency. So yep. I think uh, that's going to be when this, when, when at that point you're going to have your team that you're really running, running with. Yeah, and he said 2020. He said the 2000. I said 2022 offseason. I'm sorry. His question was for the 2021-22 offseason. That's a weird way to word it, but it's I assume he means assume. summer of 2021. Yeah. Right. That's when the big class is out there, Giannis and all those kind yeah. of names that you see. Yeah. No. To me, yeah. That's that's where I would feel like yes, going after if there's if you have a max cap slot available, which is a big if, then yeah, that's that's. The first thing that I would be looking for is to find that one last big time piece uh, that can that can fit along with Luca. That's there whenever you are load managing during the season. That is able to to elevate into an even bigger role when somebody gets hurt, so you don't have a drop off. That's there to take some of the pressure off Luca in terms of the level of defensive attention he gets late in games. All those elements are why I would want that kind of player there. Well, so there you go. That's our mailbag. That is it. And that is 77 Minutes in Heaven for uh, this week. Keep the questions coming. We'll do this again. Yeah, we'll do another one down the road. And we will definitely be back with you next week for another exciting edition. Enjoy Last Dance and uh, enjoy Thursday. You'll be on the ticket talking Moody Madness. Yes, I will. And a real quick promotion. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry about that. Uh, We are going to be replaying all 16 playoff wins from 2011 on Fox Sports Southwest. The first two games of the Portland series are actually probably before this podcast is going to drop. Uh, they'll be on Wednesday night. We're recording this Wednesday afternoon. So Wednesday night, there will be two games of the Portland series on Saturday, games three and four. And after each uh, night when we show the series clinching game, uh, there's a show called Mavericks Playoff Rewind that I'm hosting. 30-minute shows. For example, this Portland show that's going to be on Saturday night is going to have uh, a visit I had earlier this week with Jay Kidd and Dirk at the same time on a Zoom call. Super cool. So these are brand new interviews. Yep. And uh, talked with Rick Carlisle yesterday and they're on about Zoom. that series specifically yes. or the whole run. Uh, that series specifically. Uh, and and you'll hear when we and do the Dirk Lakers. Dirk obviously was the one who, you know, in that playoff series, you know, kind of somebody who doesn't talk much, but kind of galvanized the troops yeah. after the devastating loss. As a matter of fact, you're going to hear, you're going to hear, Thoughts on that from 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 Dirk and from Rick Carlisle as well. But but those three are on for the the recap after the Portland series. Uh, Dirk and Jay Kidd and Rick for after the Lakers series. And, and I then you um, have Carlisle's so, mommy as well. No, no, no I don't know anything okay, about that. My bad. Uh, and then 
I'll, I'll, I'll save the surprise for others who are going to join us later on down the road. But uh, but if you tune in on Saturday, you'll see me talking with Dirk and Jay Kidd and Carlisle about that Portland series. Buttle yeah. just refuses to go away. He's going to be... I'm going to be TV, here. Podcasting, yeah. <laughs> radio. He just... I'm not going away, man. All right. Sounds good. We'll see you next week. Bye.